Amen. Well, good morning, Life Church. Uh, I'm glad that you found us on our live stream this morning. I'm glad that we can remain connected together in this way. And I'm especially glad that this morning we can sing the truths of the gospel back to our Lord and to whomever is you know, in the living room or bedroom or car or wherever you are with you today. Um, and I'm also glad that together we can now sit under the teaching of God's word together. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 13, so I hope you have a Bible with you or a way to get the Bible in front of you this morning as we just continue to look at the parables that Jesus taught in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we're looking at the parable, it's commonly called the parable of the weeds. Um, in 2009, Taylor Swift sold out her show at Madison Square Garden in New York City an arena that seats about 20,000 people. She sold out her show there in 60 seconds. Tickets went on sale, and 60 seconds later, they were gone. And so in order to be one of those screaming, adoring fans of Taylor who heard her shake it off or whatever it is that she did on that day, um, in order to be one of those people in the room, you had to be committed, you had to be prepared, you had to be ready in order to get tickets as soon as they went on sale because in 60 seconds, they were gone. A few years later, in 2012, Justin Bieber outdid Taylor by a hefty margin. He sold out not one, but two shows in that same arena, Madison Square Garden, not in 60 seconds, but in 30 seconds. And so the Belieber army, again, right, they were ready to go. They were ready to buy those tickets as soon as they were available. And in 30 seconds, 40,000 tickets from the Bieber concert were gone. But all of that pales in comparison to the Asian, South Korean sensation boy band EXO in 2015, when EXO was on their EXO Planet 2 tour, they sold out the Olympic Gymnastic Arena in Seoul, which seats about 65,000 fans. They sold out that arena in 0.4 seconds. Again, in order to be one of those adoring, screaming fans, you had to be ready, you had to be prepared, you had to be committed. But I'm not just here to put stats like that before you. There's some other things we can think about together. In 2016, the car maker Tesla released the Model 3, the Tesla Model 3. And in the first 24 hours that the Tesla Model 3 was available, the company sold 180,000 of those cars. In the first three days the Model 3 was available, their total reached 276,000 cars, translating to $11.5 billion in sales in three days. Last year, when the movie Avengers Endgame was released, in the first 48 hours, tickets were available. $1.2 billion in ticket sales were registered as fans lined up to see the final installment of the Avengers saga. And a little bit more back in the day, in 2007, when author J.K. Rowling released the final installment in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. This is a book, mind you, we don't read, right? But enough people bought this book. How many? 15 million copies of that book were sold in the very first day it was available. And I put those things before you because when I think about news like that, I really find myself wondering, why does the gospel seem to make so little impact on the world? 
I mean, if so many people are willing to go to great lengths to turn out and hear Bieber sing or to be the first person to drive a car or the first person to have read a book or watched a movie, I mean, why are our churches so empty? And I'm not talking about on this day when this church building is empty. I mean, in a normal season of life, why is it that churches aren't full, sold-out, standing-room-only kinds of crowds? I mean, we, we have good news. We gather today to worship the king of the universe, a king who loves us so completely that he came to earth and died in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. But then he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And 40 days after that, he ascended to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, where at this very moment, he rules over all things in perfect power and perfect wisdom and perfect love. Not only that, He's promised to return. He's promised to come again one day in power and in glory and to make everything that's broken in the world whole. He's come to fix everything that's wrong. He's coming to wipe every tear from every eye. We have the good news that there is a king who loves us so much that he's coming to do that for us. And not only that, but we don't relate to this king as a slave might relate to a master, though he is our master. We don't relate to this king as a student might relate to a teacher, though he certainly is our teacher. We relate to this king as brothers and sisters, not because of anything that we've earned or deserved or accomplished in life, but purely and completely because of his grace. Brothers and sisters, wouldn't you agree that that is good news? And it's ours. And when we think about that good news, how can we not but wonder, why does the gospel seem to make so little difference? Why aren't people rushing to embrace Jesus? Why aren't churches full, standing room only crowds week after week after week? And then even in those churches, I just wonder, why, why does it seem like Jesus makes so little difference in the lives of people? Why do some who willingly call Jesus Lord seem to struggle to live under his lordship? Why do some who profess how worthy Jesus is seem to offer so few parts of their lives as worthy sacrifices to him? Why does the gospel seem to make such a small difference in our lives and in the lives of so many? These are the questions that we find answers to in this famous parable of Jesus, the parable of the weeds, which we'll read in Matthew 13. Let me pray for us this morning, and then we'll submit ourselves to this teaching together. Father God, I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that we would be people of understanding, people who have soft hearts, not only to your truth, but to the demands that those truths place upon us so that we might live lives that are shaped and affected by your gospel. God, I admit that this is is just a weird space that we're in. Uh, Our our lives, they seem weird. They seem strange and in a surreal way disconnected from reality right now. 
And at the same time, we recognize that even this thing that we're doing at this moment, this is true reality, God, because you are the creator of all things. You have revealed yourself to us through your word, and you summon us to worship you. So this thing that we're doing right now, it is as real as it gets, but even via this live stream from this side of the camera, it feels just so surreal and unnatural today. And so I pray, Lord, that you would not be hindered by any of that. I pray that you would work even through a live stream in the lives of people that I can't put my eyes on right now and to probe into their hearts and to reveal the truth of your goodness, your mercy, your grace. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself through your word today. We pray all of that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So Matthew 13 contains seven different parables. The parable of the sower, which we studied last week. The parable of the weeds, which we're studying today. And then we have the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great value, and finally, the net. And as we get started in our passage today, I just want to make a couple of observations about all of those parables that help us understand this parable we're studying in particular. So first of all, I mean, it's just important to realize that Matthew is very deliberate about the way he tells the story of Jesus' life. He doesn't just take a bunch of random stories and events and teachings of Jesus and kind of throw them together however they might fall. No, he's showing us something about the nature of Jesus and the secret of his kingdom by even the very order in which he tells us the events of Jesus' life. And so in Matthew chapters 11 and 12, Jesus meets a number of groups of people, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and even some people from his own family who reject him. And so kind of one of the themes of Matthew 11 and 12 is the rejection of Jesus. And so then Matthew pivots to these teachings, to these parables in chapter 13, all of which on some level explain to us why some people reject Jesus and why other people don't. And then the second thing that we can kind of observe about all of these parables is the fact that many of them begin with something that starts very small, but over time grows to be very large. And so, for example, we read about the parable of the mustard seed or the parable of the leaven. These are things that begin very small. They seem insignificant at first, but over time they grow. And there comes to be a day when they are impossible to ignore. Let's see how those truths Help us understand this parable in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24. He, that's Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
Now, I feel like the first thing I should do is admit that I have very little personal credibility when it comes to like, how things grow and what you have to do to make them grow and what you need to not do in order for them to grow, uh, because that's just never been in my skill set as a person. In fact, in my entire life, 40 plus years now, I have successfully kept one potted plant alive. And I'm really proud of that. It was a succulent. I don't really know what that means, but that's what the person who gave it to me told me it was called. And I kept it alive for like 18 months. She told me when she gave it to me, all you have to do, James, is water this once a month, two tablespoons of water, and it'll be fine. And so I did that. I put a reminder in my phone to remind myself to water it on the first day of every month. And I did that about six months in. It started to look a little wimpy. And so I went to a florist friend of mine and I said, florist friend, what do I do about this plant that looks so wimpy? And she looked at me like I was this, you know, like sad, lost puppy. And she told me, well, you do know that plants need sunlight in order to grow. And I was like, that's brand new information to me because apparently I missed that in seventh grade earth science. And so I put the plant by the window and again, it flourished for like a whole other year. But then the whole thing just became too much responsibility. And so I threw it out. That's the only plant I've ever managed to keep alive in my whole entire life. And so when Jesus talks about a metaphor like this, a parable like this, he's dealing with stuff that I just don't know how to deal with myself. And furthermore, I realize that there are a lot of people watching this live stream who, like, you look at plants and they just magically grow, like, as, because of your sheer, like, force of personality. You can bring things from the ground. And so you do know what you're talking about when we talk about spaces like this, and, and I very much don't. But I can tell you a couple things that really matter when it comes to the parable that Jesus tells here. Here's the first one. The scenario that Jesus describes of, you know, a landowner sowing seed and then his enemy coming and sowing bad seed in that same land. Like, that seems sort of hard for us to believe, but it was really a familiar scenario in Jesus' day. It was so familiar, actually, that the Roman government of the time had laws that prohibited people from doing this because apparently it was a common way that you might prank your neighbor or something like that in in order to you know, make sure that his harvest wasn't a good harvest so that you could charge more for your harvest because you didn't have bad seed sowed among your good seed. And so anyway, the Romans prohibited this. This is a real thing, the kind of thing that people in Jesus' day were really dealing with. Furthermore, like the, the mechanics of this are significant. Apparently there's a kind of plant, a kind of weed that grew in the time of Jesus that at its very early stages looked exactly like wheat. And you couldn't actually tell that it wasn't wheat until it was almost time to harvest that plant. Only then would it, would, re, would, re, would it reveal that it wasn't wheat, but that it was instead a weed. Of course, by that point in time, the roots of that weed would have become so entangled with the good seed, the wheat that was growing in the field, that you couldn't pull up that weed without also pulling up the wheat along with it. And so the only solution was to let both wheat and weed grow to maturity and then separate one from the other. And that's what explains the master's instruction in this parable, right? The master says, let both of them grow, and then at harvest, separate them. The wheat to be stored in the barn, the weeds to be bundled and destroyed completely. Now after this parable, Jesus tells two more parables very briefly. The parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, And then, in verses 34 and 35, Matthew, kind of offering a a comment as the narrator, tells us that Jesus taught in parables to fulfill what was said about Jesus in Psalm 78. And then in verse 36, 
The crowds leave, the disciples come to Jesus, and they ask him to explain the parable of the weeds. It's the same pattern that we saw last week with the parable of the sower. Jesus taught the large crowds in parables. He explains the parable to his disciples. He does the same thing here. Let's look at his explanation. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now, I hope you know that when Jesus calls himself the son of man, that's one of his favorite ways to describe himself, or it's one of his favorite titles that he uses to reveal who he is. And that title, the son of man, it's it's a title that relies heavily on the Old Testament, especially prophecies in places like Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet gives us this vision of God the Father, who is called the Ancient of Days, giving to God the Son, who is called the Son of Man, the authority to judge and to forgive sin. That's authority that's bestowed upon the Son of Man by the Ancient of Days. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's kind of bringing into the picture that concept or that backdrop. And that's a a backdrop that matters so much in this parable because we see that Jesus is talking about judgment and forgiveness, don't we? We see that he refers to this time when the Son of Man will come to justly judge sin in the world, which is why he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. He goes on, the field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The son of man, again, the one who has authority to judge And to forgive, the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, as we think about Jesus' explanation of this parable, I want to point us this morning to three truths about God. I'm going to call them theological truths, truths that tell us about who God is and how he works in the world that this parable reveals to us. And so three things that we're going to walk through in the remaining time I have with you this morning. Here's the first one. This parable alludes to the fact that Christians are called by God to live as part of the world, yet apart from the world. So part of, yet apart from. In other words, we're called to not be separated from the world. We're in the world among all the people of humanity, but we are still to be distinct from all the people of humanity. There is a difference between weeds and wheat. Yet for now, that difference is not clear to us. And this is a season when the Lord is allowing both weed and wheat to grow side by side until the end of the age. And so as Christians, we're to know that we share a garden with the children of the devil, of the evil one, of the enemy. Yet we're not to resemble the children of the devil. Now, 
when we think about this truth, really there are two equal and opposite errors that we can commit when we're striving to live as part of the world, yet apart from the world. Those two equal and opposite errors are the errors of accommodation and isolation. Let's talk about accommodation first. The error of accommodation happens when we're so eager to embrace the world and love the world and minister to the world that we fail to live apart from it. The distinction that should exist between us and the world, it it disappears because we're so engaged in the world itself. We look no different at all from the world that we live a part of. And so we failed to heed, if we're guilty of this, we failed to heed the instructions of 1 John 2, verse 15, which says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I want you to pay close attention to that, if you will. The key word here is the word love. John says, do not love the world. Don't love the things in the world, because if you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. So John is getting it at what really drives us as people, at our loves, at our desires, at our affections. See, John knows that we are overwhelmingly as creatures, not thinking creatures, but feeling creatures. We're creatures who are driven first and foremost, not by what we believe to be true intellectually, but what we believe to be true in our hearts, in our affections, in our loves. We're driven more by what we desire and what we long for and what we love than we are by what we know to be true. And maybe that's a new idea to you. I want to tease it out because, because it's such a significant idea that scripture lays out for us. More than anything else, we become like what we love. We are what we love, many theologians have said over the course of history, because we're not creatures driven by our intellects. We're creatures driven by our hearts, by our loves. And so again, you can just tease that out a bunch of different ways. Think, think for example, about the things that we choose to eat and the things that we choose not to eat. Right? I can know intellectually that kale is good for me. But that is not going to make me long to eat kale, and therefore I'm not going to eat kale. Right? You know kale, right? It's a superfood, whatever that means. That's fine. It looks like lettuce, but tastes like cardboard. And I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't know about you. But the point is, like, you can show me a list of all the nutrients that are in kale. You can show me a list of all the good things that kale is going to do for my body, and I'm still not going to eat it because I don't long for it. I don't desire it. It is not something that I love. What drives me as a human being is what I love. And you're the same way. We're shaped by our affections and our desires. And so when John, he engages us about our love for the Father and our love for the world, he's pointing to what matters most, what really shapes us as people. And he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If those are the things that you love, the things that you desire, the things that you long for, oh, what a stern warning this is then the love of the Father is not in you, he says. And that's the failure of people who fail to live apart from the world as they strive to live as part of the world. The failure of people who accommodate to the world. They find that they desire the things of the world just like everyone else. 
They long for the things the world offers, just like everyone else. It's such a significant thing. Church, don't let the world rule your affections. Don't let the world rule what you long for, what you desire, what you hunger for. A person who accommodates his life to the world desires the very same things as his lost neighbor down the street. He longs for the very same things the world longs for. His affections look no different than the unsaved person next door. And this morning, I just just want to ask you, does that describe you? I mean, what are you hungry for, really? What do you desire, really? What are you longing for, really? Do your desires and longings distinguish you from the world around you? Or do they reveal a person who lives just like everyone else in the world does? That's the error of accommodation. Now let's talk about the error of isolation. This is the opposite error, but it's an equal error. And now to be clear, um, when I talk about isolation in this sense, I'm not talking about you know, self-quarantine, self-isolation like most of us are walking through in some form or another right now. No, I'm talking about the real legitimate tendency that Christians have today to pull back from the world so much that we don't have relationships with anybody who's lost. That we aren't actually living among the world. We've sort of quarantined ourselves from all influences that aren't explicitly Christian influences. We've quarantined ourselves from all people who don't believe the same things that we believe and look like us and talk like us and behave like us. When we're committing this error, we're ignoring the instruction of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. People who are guilty of isolation, right? their character, it may be exemplary. Their longings may be pure and perfect, but their influence is non-existent. Rather than prayerfully pursuing relationships with non-believers, people who isolate themselves from the world have no relationships with non-believers. They are apart from the world, yes, but they are only barely part of it. And again, I ask you today, does that describe you? Do you intentionally pursue relationships with people who are far from the Lord? Do you embrace opportunities to interact with people who are different from you? Are you cultivating relationships with non-saved people, with lost people, to give you an opportunity one day to win a hearing for the gospel? Or do you retreat each day from the world into your holy huddle? Do you interact with with unsaved or lost people only so much as you have to, only then to insulate yourself and your loved ones completely from the world's influence? Friends, until the Son of Man returns, the wheat and the weeds, they will grow together. And that's the Lord's desire. It's his will for them to grow together. May we as the people of Jesus walk the fine line, the narrow path of gospel holiness, being apart from the world, but part of the world still for the sake of gospel mission. Here's the second truth that we see, I think, very clearly in this teaching, in this passage, this parable. Um, It's an obvious truth, but it's one that's often forgotten It's the reality that, according to Jesus here, Satan is at work 
in the world. I mean, the Son of Man, he sows good seed in the world. But there is an enemy who sows bad seed, who sows weeds among the wheat. That enemy, he is real and he is active. And we can't forget this. And one of my favorite things on this idea that's ever been said was what C.S. Lewis said in the introduction to his very famous book, The Screwtape Letters. He said this. You'll hear some familiar language here. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. And when he says the devils, he just means Satan and all of Satan's demonic hordes. He says there are two equal and opposite errors there. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And he says they themselves, the devils, right, Satan and his minions, they're equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Let me explain what he means by a materialist and a magician. They apply to each of those errors. So let's talk about the materialist first. This is the person who ignores the reality of Satan, who ignores the reality of Satan and his influence in the world. The temptation here is to think that because we only see flesh and blood, that flesh and blood is all there is. We, we tend to see all of our struggles in this world as flesh and blood struggles, as physical, material struggles, because Satan and his minions are unseen. And the result of that is that we fight temptation with nothing more than willpower. We seek to grow in holiness without prayer. We seek to rely on our own strength, on our own ambition, on ourselves, on our own flesh and blood and our abilities rather than on the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens if you are a materialist, if you're someone who believes that the material world is all there is, or at least functionally believes that. Right? You can believe that Satan exists, but you can fail to act like he exists. That's a materialist too. Someone who acts like the material world is all that matters, is all that there is. And so I ask you today, are you mindful, genuinely, of the enemy's existence? And are you mindful of his methods? The ways he strives to tempt you. The ways he strives to accuse you to persuade you to believe that the gospel isn't true and that God doesn't genuinely love you? Are you mindful of the ways he tries to deceive you into believing that his way is better than the Lord's way? We can't be materialists, people who ignore the reality of Satan and his work in the world. Nor can we be what Lewis calls magicians, people who attribute far too much to the work and the power of Satan. These are people who blame every bad thing that happens on Satan. Now, we must not forget that Satan is real, church. But we must not also forget that Satan is defeated. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so we should hear that and heed that. Satan is a ferocious beast. But he's a ferocious beast on a muzzle and a leash. Because Christ has defeated sin and he's defeated death and he's defeated Satan as well. And so every power that Satan has is power that the Lord has permitted him to have. Right? Christ and Satan are not two equal and opposite foes. No, Christ is over and against Satan. Satan is a defeated and vanquished foe. And yes, he still wields influence in this world. But it's an influence that Christ is permitting him to have 
only for a time. His power is limited, whereas Christ's is not. His reign, it has an expiration date, whereas Christ's does not. And so he is real, brothers and sisters, but he is not someone that we need to obsess over. And we need never fear that Satan's work in the world will one day overcome Christ's work in the world. We need never fear that Satan's schemes and plots are someday going to outsmart the holy trinity of God the Father and the Son and the Spirit and thereby overcome them. No, he does not have that power. Yes, he is a ferocious beast, but he is muzzled and he is leashed and he will not have his way with us if we are in Christ. The third thing that this parable teaches us is that evil will flourish in this life but only until Christ returns to judge all things. And this parable makes it so clear that there will be a harvest at the end of the age. The reapers will come. They will sort the weeds from the wheat. The weeds will be destroyed forever. And the wheat will be preserved in our Heavenly Father's barn forever. And church, I know we need to hear this because evil does continue. It does seem to flourish. But what we must realize is that it continues and flourishes only in this life. Though it can appear to us like it will thrive forever, evil has an expiration date. It has a shelf life. There will be a day when it is finished, when it is over, when it continues no more. And that's the exceedingly good news that we can celebrate together as the people of God this morning. Now, when Christians typically talk about good news, we typically talk about the love and the mercy and the saving grace of God by which our sins are forgiven, by which we are made whole and holy in Christ Jesus. And of course, that is good news. But what we can realize today as we think about this parable, the reality of the day when the Lord separates wheat from weeds, that's also good news. The reality of the day when the Son of Man comes, not only to forgive sins, but to judge evil and lawbreakers and the unrighteous, that's good news too. The perfect justice of God, which he will execute through his Son, that is good news too. The future judgment of the living and the dead, that's good news. The future punishment of the unrighteous for eternity. That's good news. And it's good news simply because it means that there will be a day when God makes everything right. There will be a day when God judges justly. And on that day, there is not one ounce or iota of evil that will go unpunished. And maybe you don't realize that today. But that is actually the news that you're longing for right now. I mean, it's the news that you long for every time you open the newspaper and you read about terrorism or gun violence or sexual abuse. It's the news that you long for every time you go to the doctor and he gives you a hard diagnosis to hear. It's the news that you long for every time you get a phone call with the news of a loved one's passing. It's the news that you long for when you're burdened by a rebellious child. It's the news that you long for when you grow weary and strained by a marriage that just isn't working. 
And it's the news that you long for as you sit in your home anxious about a microscopic virus that you can't see or understand. Right? The news that you long for in those spaces, friends, is the news that God is going to make everything right. He is going to destroy sin. He's going to destroy evil and all its effects. And Christ will make all things new. He will wipe every tear from every eye. There will be no more mourning, no more sadness, no more death, no more pain, no more sickness. Because the Son of Man is coming to judge justly the living and the dead. Deep in our hearts, that's what we long for. We long for the return of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8 that we long, that we groan in that longing as in the pains of childbirth because we're just longing for Christ to return to separate weeds from wheat. We long for Jesus to come and to restore his kingdom. And the immensely good news that we sit under as a church is the fact that he will. Now today it might seem like the gospel is making so little impact in the world Stadiums will one day again fill for the most trivial of reasons. Money will always be spent on the most trivial of obsessions. But there will be a day when the gospel impacts each and every person on the face of the world one way or another. There will be a day when the weeds are separated from the wheat. Believers, this is your blessed hope. Even in the face of a virus, this is the thing you hope for. Not life getting back to normal, not everybody being safe and healthy. You long for the return of Jesus. And if you're dialed into this today and you're not a believer, I'm so glad that you're here. I just pray today that you would see that this idea of judgment, this reality of judgment, it is real. And I pray that it would be to you not only a warning, but also an invitation. Won't you turn to Christ? There's a church father, Augustine, who said thousands of years ago, he said, there are those who are weeds today who may become wheat tomorrow. And my question for you is, why stay a weed? Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. He will satisfy the longings of your heart. He will deliver you from the evil one, the God of this age. And he will save you in the judgment to come. Won't you turn to him? Father God, we thank you so much for the gracious offer of forgiveness in Christ. And we are so grateful that we can look forward to his return when he will set all things right, when he will make all things new, and when every ounce of evil in the world will meet the due that it deserves. And we praise you, God, for the fact that if we are in Christ, we will not get what we deserve. Instead, we will get the grace and the forgiveness that you give give us so freely through him. And we pray that until Jesus returns, you would help us to endure, to hold on, and to stand firm, looking to Christ and Christ alone, who is our hope, our safety, our peace, our healing. He's our Savior. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.